Uh, just to give you a high-level overview, uh, we're going to put a. I've asked Rob to put a chart up uh, from Arnold Fruchtenbaum's book uh, in the footsteps of the Messiah. If you had, none of you have read that book, it's an excellent book. These charts came right off Aerial Ministries' website. I talked to Becky, so we have permission to uh, use them. I wanted to give you just briefly. We're not going to spend too much time on this, but just to give you an overview of. The big picture of eschatology, which is the study of end times, you'll see the cross, which is the beginning of the church age. We're now under the dispensation of grace, which means we have a relationship with God not based on the law, but on the basis of grace. And underneath that dispensation of grace, you will see the church age, which is where we are now. The church, as you know, was born at Pentecost and will be on planet Earth. It is God's mechanism for reaching the lost of the world. Uh, until the rapture. The rapture, of course, we spent some time on a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, and that's going to be the gray bar going up in the middle. And, of course, you can see this chart was built in 2003. That's why it's AD 2003 plus X. That's when Arnold did this. And we've been spending a fair chunk of time in that little bubble after the, the uh, church age called the tribulation. Now, we are at this stage of the game about halfway through the tribulation, Rob, if you could put the next chart up, that would be great. This should be chart number five in your handouts. For those of you that have a handout, um, I asked you a couple weeks ago to keep it in your Bible, fold it in half. This is, these are the events in the middle of the tribulation. Uh, chart number five. And you're going to see that we've been through a chunk of these already, and we'll be going through more of them here shortly. Uh, we have uh, the middle of the tribulation really begins at the end of the sixth trumpet judgment. And that's where we've been uh, the last couple of weeks. You'll notice that we've, uh, we have seen the death of the Antichrist uh, a couple last week. We've seen Satan cast down to earth uh, in chapter 13, war in heaven. We've talked about that. The resurrection of the Antichrist, of course, was last week. Uh, destruction of Ecclesiastical Babylon, that's going to happen in chapter 17. So I wanted to kind of give you an idea where we were in the chronology of eschatology, which is a very fancy way of saying within the end times prophetic sequence in the book of Revelation, not everything occurs in strict chronology. Some things are the trumpet judgments, the seal judgments, those things you look and go one, two, three, four, five, six. That's pretty chronological, pretty easy to track. But as you recall, in chapter 10, we entered kind of an interlude period of time. And in chapter 12, we actually went back in time looking at the same events that we studied in chapter 6 through 9, but from Satan's point of view instead of from God's point of view. So chapter 6 through 9 are the opening parts of the first half of the tribulation from heaven's perspective. Chapters, especially uh, this last week, 12 and 13, are the events of the first half of the tribulation from the earth's point of view or from Satan's point of view. Last week, as you recall, we went through a, a probably a more detailed introduction to the Antichrist, and we spent a lot of time in the book of Daniel. For those of you that weren't here and want to cross-reference Revelation 13, the first half, you can look at Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, Daniel 11, all have an extraordinary amount of detail about this coming world dictator who will be larger than life and he will be Satan's masterpiece. Uh, remember in the tribulation, Jesus is judging both the wicked and the wicked ones in preparation for his return to planet earth. But during the tribulation period, that seven year period that you see on your chart, it's gonna be the time of Jacob's trouble as Jesus prophesied in the Old Testament. And it is really the time of period of time where evil is on the ascent. 
but it's imperative that we understand that Jesus Christ is always in complete control over everything. But the tribulation period is that period of time where God in his infinite wisdom allows evil to surface to reveal to us the character of Satan. <clears throat> now there's other reasons, but remember Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and disguises himself as a, a good angel, as a light bearer, and we see him for what he really is during the tribulation. Now Jesus is going to be destroying this treasonous rule of Satan before he returns to set up his kingdom on earth, but it's imperative that you understand that Satan's primary tool for world dominion has always been the same. It's never changed. It's always been deception. It's always been deception. Satan is the father of lies. He disguises himself as an angel of light. His stock in trade is lying. He's been lying from the day of his fall until now. The very first time we see him in the Garden of Eden, what's he doing? He's lying through his teeth. He's deceiving Adam and Eve. He's casting aspersions on the character of God and creating doubt. So here's the key idea for today's lesson. We live in an age of increasing deception. And spiritual deception is deadly. This is not... You lie to me, shame on me, you lie to me twice, you know, that kind of thing. Deception can be deadly. Deception can destroy. Actually, spiritual deception always is deadly and it always destroys. And it's increasing during this period of time. Jesus warned us about this in Matthew 24, 11. He said, for many will come in what? My name. They'll claim the name of Jesus saying, I am the Christ and will mislead Many And the technique they'll use to mislead many is the same one we're going to study today, Mark eleven twenty two. Jesus told the disciples, false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show many signs and wonders in order, if possible, to lead the elect. That's you and I. These are believers astray, to, de to deceive, to lead astray. So Satan is going to produce many, many, many miraculous signs and wonders in order to authenticate his deceptive claims. We should not be surprised that during this period of time, the midpoint of the tribulation, we are seeing a radical increase in deception because we have seen a radical increase in the number of demons on planet Earth during this period of time. Remember that Revelation 9 told us that demons will be released from the abyss Satan is given the key to the abyss. He releases a lot of demons. We don't know how many there are, but there's undoubtedly millions upon millions. Myriads of myriads, we know that for sure. An additional 200 million demons are released from the Euphrates River, the last half of chapter 9, verse 13. In chapter 12, we find out there's war in heaven between Michael, the archangel, and Satan, and Satan's hosts. And who loses that one? Satan loses, and what happens to him and all his millions of demons? They're thrown down to earth. Where are they? In your backyard, right? There's a lot of them. There may be more angelic creatures than there are people. I don't know the answer to that, but that is eminently possible. There could be as many demons as there are individual people. So all these demons who have been in the heavenly places, who have been in the abyss, who have been in the bound at the river Euphrates, are now at the midpoint of the tribulation, loose on planet earth. And what are they doing? Lying. That's what they do. Liars lie. You know liars, right? What do they do? Die. They lie. They're reliable. You can count on it. When they open their mouth, they're probably deceiving you. In the spiritual realm, we know that is in fact case. So we're going to see deception increase dramatically during this period of time. And remember, the greatest lie that Satan is going to promulgate during this period of time 
is he is promulgating the lie that Antichrist is God himself. Antichrist is deity. Satan is going to package and market the Antichrist, not just as a great political and military leader. Satan is going to promote Antichrist as the resurrected and returning Christ himself. He's going to promote Antichrist as Jesus Christ, the most powerful earthly ruler that the Jews... Remember, what did the Jews expect of their Messiah? They expected their Messiah to be a military political ruler of planet Earth. You know something? Satan is not stupid. He's going to present Antichrist to the Jewish nation the first half of the tribulation as that military political leader, and they're going to buy it. And so will the rest of the world for a time. Now, in order to promote this deception, Satan uses many, many false prophets, and we're going to take a look at the greatest of all of them. Chapter 13, verse 11. And another beast, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. Now, the word beast here is the Greek word therion, T-H-E-R-I-O-N. It means a wild animal. This is not Fido. Right, this is not your Pomeranian you put in your lap. This is a wild, rapacious, bloodthirsty animal that will kill you. It's a predator. And it says, another beast, Alontherion, that's the Greek, and it means another beast of the same kind. What's the first beast? The Antichrist. What's the second beast? Like the first beast, right? So this character is like the Antichrist. And the first beast, we found out the first half of this chapter, came up out of the sea. That's the Antichrist. And he's the Antichrist is primarily military and political. Primarily military and political. The second beast is primarily religious. Primarily a religious leader. So you have military politics on one side, religion on the other. Now, Revelation 16, 19, and 20 call this second beast the false prophet. The meaning singular. The greatest false prophet. The greatest, the biggest liar is this guy. Understand that the Antichrist and this, the first beast is the Antichrist, and the false prophet, that's the second beast, these guys are allies. But they're individual human beings who sit atop global institutions. Right? They have great, great followings. The whole earth follows after these two people and obey them. What we have here in this chapter should get you on your knees because what you have is one world government married to one world religion. What dies in that combination? Freedom. Freedom of conscience dies. You have one world government and one world religion and they're united. And they're both controlled by evil people. Empowered by Satan himself. See, government works from the outside in. Government is external force. This is the Antichrist. Religion works from the inside out. Internal persuasion and seduction. This is the false prophet. So they're working both from the outside in and from the inside out. Now this second beast, verse 13, is coming up out of the earth. The first beast came up out of where? Where? The sea. Now understand that for the ancients, for the ancients, people this period... Under the sea meant darkness and mysterious and the abyss and the bottomless pit because it was unknown. They didn't have diving suits. I mean, they were terrified of the Sea of Galilee and it was only 150 feet deep. But they didn't know it was 150 feet deep. I mean, you know, you went underwater, you held your breath. You couldn't go down very far and you couldn't see very. So under the water, under the sea, 
always meant that which is mysterious and dark and the abyss and scary and evil. The second beast is from where? Under the earth. The earth is much more familiar. So the second beast, he's going to appear much more benign, much more harmless than the first beast. What's common to both these is both of them come from below. Below, underneath the sea, underneath the earth, they both have their origin in hell, and both of them are possessed and controlled by demons. However, the description of this second beast is interesting. It says he looks like a, what? A lamb, a little lambkin, right? What do you know about lambs? They're pretty gentle, they're pretty harmless, right? They're domesticated, they get two little nubs for horns, right? Not a lot of to fear with a lamb. However, it says when this lamb opens his mouth, his origin is revealed because when he speaks, he doesn't speak like a lamb. He speaks like a dragon. He tells the world to worship the first beast. That's not a lamb. He tells the world to take the mark of the first beast or die. Doesn't sound like a lamb either. He's a dragon dressed up like a lamb. Matthew 7, Jesus told us to beware of that, except Jesus said, you know, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. I'm saying beware of dragons in lamb's clothing. Same thing. Now, you know what's interesting? The first beast, the Antichrist, um, it says he acts like a leopard, a lion, and a bear. Now, you know those people are, those animals are what? Predators, Right? They're harmful, they're dangerous, and they're obviously dangerous. The second beast doesn't come across as obviously dangerous, but he's deceptive. He looks like a lamb, but he talks like a dragon. You don't want this character in your sleeping bag with you on a camping trip, right? Probably not good for your long-term health. He's a liar, and spiritual deception, as we said before, is deadly. When he opens his mouth, hell is doing the talking. Now, sometimes Satan presents himself as what? A roaring lion. Now, if a lion is roaring, do you have an idea that it's probably not too good to get too close? Right? You would say, yeah, of course, it's a roaring lion. Sometimes Satan is a cross-dresser. He looks like a lamb, but he snacks on the sheep. Right? This ain't no lamb. This is a dragon, and if you get deceived by this lamb, you'll be lunch. Be careful. Be aware. Be discerning. We're going to talk about that. Now, with the addition of this second beast, we now have the third member of Satan's unholy trinity. Satan opposes God the Father. Remember, Satan is a counterfeiter. Satan is an imitator. He's the most uncreative person on the planet. Satan creates nothing. He copies everything. So he's observed the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He fancies himself to be God the Father. So he now has created, he's, God's allowed it, but he's called up and infused and infilled the Antichrist, who's what? Opposes God the Son. This false prophet is God the Holy Spirit. So you have three members of the satanic trinity counterfeiting, pretending, and deceiving the world into believing that the Antichrist is God, the false prophet is the Holy Spirit, Satan is God the Father, and what does Satan crave? Your worship. He craves your worship. He is an addict for worship. 
and he deserves none of it. He is not worthy of any. Who, is, who alone is worthy of all worship? Only God. All worship. He's not going to share it with anybody, and he shouldn't. So what's the job description of this second beast? Let's go to verse 12. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. So the primary job of this false prophet is to convince the world to worship the Antichrist as God. This false prophet's job is to counterfeit the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit gets no glory for himself. Remember, the Holy Spirit does not exalt the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit exalts who? Jesus. Jesus. The primary function of the Holy Spirit is to point to the work of Jesus Christ. John 16, John 16, verse 13. However, when he, this is Jesus Christ talking, he's telling the disciples, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he, this Holy Spirit, will guide you into all the truth. By the way, that's a good cure for deception. The Holy Spirit can guide you into truth. For he, the Holy Spirit, will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. Aha. He will glorify me. Jesus is telling his disciples, the Holy Spirit will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit will be the one who illuminates the scriptures for you. By the way, if you're studying the word of God and you're confused, that would be a good sign that you need to stop and pray. Ask for wisdom. Ask the Holy Spirit to turn the searchlight on and help you understand. You can't believe how inadequate I am in studying this. Completely inadequate. Completely inadequate. I look at this stuff and I'm going, Lord, if you don't open my mind to what this is, I have nothing to say. This is not easy stuff to understand. Many of you have come to me and said, man, this is very confusing. Yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. The natural mind does not understand either. That's why your lost friends look at this and it seems like nonsense to them. But you, when the Holy Spirit opens your mind, you go, I get it, because he turns the spotlight on. You understand, of course. You have the Holy Spirit to do that for you at that point. So the Holy Spirit it will guide us into truth, but he's also going to reveal Jesus to us. And the second beast here that we just meet, this anti-spirit, is going to magnify who? Antichrist. He's going to copy the Holy Spirit. However, it's interesting, I want you to read this in verse 12. It says, he exercises all the authority of the first beast. Where does he exercise the authority? What's the next phrase? In the presence of the first beast. See, the Antichrist is a glory hog. He's a worship hog. He's not going to allow the second beast to do all these miracles and get glory for himself. All the glory here has got to go to the Antichrist. All the worship's got to go to the Antichrist. He's keeping a very close eye on this false prophet who's got the capacity to do these miracles because he doesn't want him stealing any of his glory. You know, you've heard it said there's no honor among thieves. Yeah, well, that's it here. Both these characters, the first beast, the Antichrist, the second beast, the false prophet, work for Satan, are empowered by Satan, are possessed by Satan, but they don't trust each other. That's one of the curses of hell. No one trusts anybody, right? Evil people don't trust each other. You know why? Because they know they're liars, and so they assume that everybody else is a liar too, right? Say yes, you, you know people like this, right? Of course, you work with some of them, right? 
It says that this second beast, this false prophet, makes the earth worship the first beast. Now, this is one world religion. This is a cult of one person. It's a cult of the Antichrist. This false prophet, by the way, is going to have to be the most persuasive communicator ever. You know what the job of this false prophet is? It's really a big job. He's got to persuade Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus, Jews, Protestants, Catholics, Sikhs, every world religion to forsake their beliefs and worship his man, the Antichrist. We can't even get people of goodwill to even stay in the same building with different religious beliefs. This is going to require some degree of persuasion. And he says, eight times it says in the, in the book of Revelation, this false prophet makes or causes the world to worship. Now I want you to know that the, this beast, this, this um, false prophet, He's going to make the world worship the Antichrist by doing two things. One, he's going to give them an enormous number of miraculous signs. Huge. And the second one is, he's going to say, if you don't worship, you're going to die. That's going to make up a lot of people's minds really quick, right? Worship or die. So, the foremost miraculous sign that Satan uses to convince the world that the Antichrist is really God went over last week. It was a death and resurrection of the Antichrist. Now, you say, well, Brad, <clears throat> why would Satan want to resurrect the Antichrist? Who, who died for our sins? Jesus. The real Jesus? Who was resurrected? Jesus. The real Jesus? Who ascended? The real Jesus? What did we say? Satan is a counterfeiter. He's an imitator. He has got to have his man, the Antichrist, die and be resurrected in order to generate faith and following and worship of his guy, the Antichrist. So he's going to copy the resurrection. It's also interesting that the Antichrist apparently is resurrected right after or close to the time when God resurrects his two witnesses. Remember we talked several weeks ago, God has two Jewish witnesses that preach the gospel for three and a half years. Fire comes out of their mouth if you try and destroy them. They have the power to shut up the heavens and produce drought, etc., etc. The Antichrist kills them. God resurrects them, sends them to heaven. And Satan wants that same level of credibility for himself. He's got to have a resurrection for his counterfeit Christ. 2 Thessalonians, if you're looking for a good cross-reference, 2 Thessalonians 9, it tells us that the world will believe this lie. And they'll believe this lie because they refuse the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because they refuse the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's going to send them strong delusion to believe the lie because they refuse the gospel. Now see, Satan's going to use this false prophet to magnify the Antichrist by means of signs and wonders. Go Take a look at verse... Uh, 13, and he performs great signs. So this false prophet's got supernatural ability to perform great signs. So he even makes what? Fire. Fire. Fire come down from heaven in the presence of men. Now we know the source of these signs is who? Where's the power source coming from? Satan, Satan obviously. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan 
with all power. I'm in verse 9 of chapter 2 of Thessalonians 2. Signs and lying wonders. Power, lying, signs, and lying wonders with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Here's the principle. And the church needs to get off their backside and pay attention to this. Miraculous signs by themselves are not reliable indicators of God's work. Period. Do not get impressed with signs and wonders. That is not a guarantee of any kind that Almighty God is at work. A sign is not reality. A sign points to something greater than itself, right? How many of you drive down the freeway, 99 South, and you'll see a freeway sign that says, Bakersfield, 39 miles? Is that sign the city of Bakersfield? No. No, it points to the city of Bakersfield. It points to the reality. So when Jesus did all these miracles, all these miracles, they were pointing to something greater. You know what they were pointing to? His claim to be God. He claimed to be God and he authenticated it by doing these miracles. As Pastor Roger said this morning, the Gospel of John is organized around seven signs. John doesn't even call them miracles. He calls them seven signs because they point to something else. Now, what mattered more than the miracles Jesus did was the fact that the miracles, the signs Jesus performed, verified God's word. Because God had prophesied that those signs would occur centuries before. They authenticated God's word. See, Satan has the capacity to do some supernatural stuff because clearly he's not uh, of the earth at this point in time. But Satan didn't make promises 500, 600, 700 years ago that he was going to do this stuff. Almighty God said, I'm going to do this and then did it to authenticate his word to demonstrate that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. Here's what's interesting. The same God that did the miracles wrote the book. It's important that you understand that. We have a God who is self-authenticating. He says he's going to do something, and he does it to demonstrate that this word is in fact from him and not from man at that point in time. Satan, on the other hand, is going to try and counterfeit everything that God did for the purpose of creating faith in him and leading people away from God. And you're going to find out as you read this book in the book of Revelation, it works swimmingly. Most of the world is going to follow him. Jesus warned us of this in Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 22. Many will say to me, this is judgment day, Jesus says, many are going to come to me and say in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you practice lawlessness. So that we know this false prophet is going to produce a lot of miracles, a lot of signs. But the signs do not magnify Christ. The signs that this character do, who do they magnify? Antichrist, right? He's all about promoting who? Antichrist. Wherever the Holy Spirit is working, you're going to see the false prophet trying to duplicate, trying to copy during this period of time. If you will always remember that Satan is a copycat and he's a liar, you'll save yourself a lot of trouble, okay? He even makes fire come down from heaven in the presence of people. He's trying to persuade them that he represents God because he's trying to counterfeit God's two witnesses. What did the two witnesses do? They can make fire come out of their mouth, right? They're preaching the gospel. If someone opposed them, they could literally have fire come out of their mouth and toast them. That's pretty impressive. They could also 
create drought, stop water rain from falling, turn water into blood, produce plagues. So Satan has got to counterfeit the work of God in order to promote the fact, his belief, his deception that Antichrist really is God. Now, fire from heaven has always been associated with the work of God. Fire from heaven destroyed what two wicked cities in the plain? Sodom and Gomorrah. Who, who put a sacrifice on Mount Carmel? Fire from heaven came down. Elijah, right? So that, we know this. Fire from heaven is a very much a God sign. Satan's going to counterfeit that. Now, the outcome of all these signs in verse 14 is deception. And it says, and he what? Deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs. Get your pen out. I want you to underline this. Which it was, underline this, given to him to perform. You must understand that there is no supernatural sign of any kind unless Almighty God allows it and permits it. All of this is given. It is allowed by God. He deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth, this is what the false prophet does, he tells those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who has the wound of the sword. You want to know how this Antichrist died? He had the wound of the sword and has come to life. That's the resurrection. Now this illustrates the old adage, what? I'll believe it when I... You know the problem with that? You got lying eyes. Your eyes can deceive you, right? How many of you have ever been to a magic show and seen an illusionist? Any of you? <clears throat> I know some of you, your spouse says you're an illusionist, but anyway. Um, none of you here, none of you here, right? What you think you see is not what really happened. An illusionist is very good at fooling your eyes into believing a lie, a visual lie. So the signs that this false prophet does, they are bona fide miracles. They are bona fide miracles. They were genuinely supernatural. The problem was, is that the world concluded that since the signs were supernatural, the source was God himself. False conclusion. Even today around the world, you will see supernatural signs and wonders that are clearly not from God. And if you don't have discernment, you're going to falsely conclude this is God's hand. Not necessarily. Because there's another disembodied intellect in the universe that has power to produce what we would call miraculous signs and wonders. Don't be deceived by appearances, right? The earth dwellers are deceived by these signs because their faith is based on their personal experience. And that is disaster most of the time. Here's the principle. The foundation of your faith is God's word. Period. Not personal experience. Trust God's objective truth more than your subjective experience. You've talked to people and they say, I had this dream. And in the dream, I experienced blah, blah. Yeah, I had one too. It's called a nightmare. You know, <laughs> too much chili to rain. You didn't sleep very well or whatever it happened to be. Your subjective experience always has to be under the authority of Scripture, not vice versa, or you will be reliably deceived. Here's the point. The believer has to view his experience or her experience of life 
through the lens of God's word. God's word is the lens through which you view life and its experiences. The unbeliever views God's word through the lens of their own experience, and they're reliably deceived. Personal experience is subjective, and here's one of the hardest things, and it hammers human pride. You know what it is? I can be successfully lied to. You have got to look in the mirror and say, I'm deceivable. I can be fooled. I'm not smart enough by myself to discern the truth all the time. Because Satan is smarter than you. I know many of you are really smart, but I'm telling you, he's out of this universe on a created scale. You can't compete by yourself. So forget about human experience. You submit that to the word of God. For the believer, any experience that denies scripture has got to be rejected. And I know, see, that's tough on the pride. We're going, well, I had this experience. I know you did, but the experience denies scripture, so therefore you know the source. It's not from God. Because God does not speak with forked tongue. The same God that wrote the Bible is the same God that created the heavens and the earth. Faith is never validated by experience, only by God's word. You want a cross-reference? I'll give you one. 1 John 4. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, right? It's another way of saying it. Don't believe everything you see, hear, taste, touch, smell, right? Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Do you think there's many false prophets in the world today? Yeah, you turn your internet on, you're buried in them. And most of them look really good and they wear suits. And they get paid to broadcast the news sometimes. Have some discernment. Just because the television said it doesn't mean it's true. And just because somebody wrote a blog about it doesn't mean it's true either. You bring it to the word. Verse 2, by this you know the spirit of God. You know the truth. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. You got a litmus test. If they don't confess and live the truth that Jesus Christ is God come into the flesh, you know the source. That's not from God, it's from Satan. Now, since the world has rejected Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, their faith is based on what? Their personal experience, which means they're a setup to be lied to. Because Satan can manipulate experience. This false prophet does supernatural signs and they buy it because they don't believe the word of God is objective reality. They trust their own senses and he's going to fool them every time. So the solution for satanic deception is real simple. It's the word of God and the Holy Spirit. This beast is going to use his power now to command the world to build an image, to build an idol of the Antichrist. See, Antichrist has got a problem. He claims to be God, but he's not omnipresent. I mean, he can't be everywhere at once. When he's out of Jerusalem on business, there's no Antichrist in Jerusalem. That's a pretty tough problem for someone who claims to be God. Well, you know what the solution is? Make an image. Put it in the Jewish temple. Put it in the Holy of Holies. Right? The place where God met man over the mercy seat. This image now allows Antichrist to leave Dodge, go on affairs of state, and still be worshipped. Now this is one sick puppy. Right? 
you're going to worship my image so I feel real good about it. This is like you putting up a little image in your house so your children could genuflect when you walk by. <laughs> and people do it. The church is filled with icons, right? And people worship the icons. Why? It's stuff. It's just material stuff. It's going to burn up. Don't get deceived. This image obviously violates the second commandment, which says don't create or worship any image. Now, the setting up of this image in the Holy of Holies is prophesied in Matthew 24, Daniel 9, as the, as the abomination of desolation. Jesus had said, when Antichrist sets up an image of himself in the Holy of Holies, the Jews in Israel are to what? Flee immediately. Don't even go down to your house to get an extra pair of shoes. If you're out in the field, don't go home and get a change of clothes. Get out of Dodge because persecution is going to begin immediately. And this is the midpoint of the tribulation. This is the halfway point. Because the last half of the tribulation, Antichrist breaks his treaty with Israel and begins to persecute them to the death. So we know that this is occurring right at the midpoint. Now, here's the problem. Worshiping a lifeless image, a motionless image, is not very compelling. I mean, you know, people look at that and go, I ah, mean, the thing doesn't move, right? How, why should I worship this thing? Here's where it gets interesting, verse 15. And there was given to him, underline that, underline that. This is, every time it says given to him, it occurs six times in this chapter. Six times in verse 13 it says given to him. That's the sovereignty of God. Only Almighty God gives authority because he's the only one who's got it. And there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast and that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, remember that Satan was given power to resurrect the Antichrist from his deadly sword wound. We went over that last week. <clears throat> By the way, there's controversy about that. There are people, many, many competent scholars that say that was a faked resurrection. Okay, I'm not going to lose any sleep over that. It is interesting, though, that God doesn't give, need to give power to people to fake a resurrection. They can do that on their own. If you're given power to resurrect, I presume it's the real thing. The false prophet was given power, we just saw that, to produce these miraculous signs. And now, some pretty competent scholars seem to believe that he's empowered by Almighty God supernaturally to give life to the image of the beast. Now, understand that the power to give life is intrinsic to the Creator alone. No creature has the power to give life. And contrary to, to uh, some people who buy the evolutionary model, one of the reasons evolution is such a fool's game is because it violates the law of biogenesis. Law of biogenesis says life only comes from life, correct? Louis Pasteur proved years ago, 150 years ago, that spontaneous generation doesn't work. You know, that which is, has no life cannot produce life. So we know that life has to come from life, and God is the source of all life as the creator. So no creature can give life unless they're endowed with that or given that by the creator. Since everybody knows that, that's, by the way, why Satan's signs are so persuasive. Everybody knows on their heart of hearts that only God can give life. So when you see this, you go, ah, oh, that must be God. Must be God. Yeah, only life, right? The word here for breath is pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, pneumatic, and it means spirit of wind. You know you get a pneumatic drill? Pneuma means wind, means spirit. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 2, 7. 
God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath, the pneuma of life, and man became a living being. Now, there are good commentators who would reject this interpretation. I understand that. And they would say that this giving the image breath, it means technological prowess. It could be very, very complex robotics, extreme animation, very sophisticated special effects. Let me tell you, in today's culture, it's going to have to be very sophisticated because most people are used to seeing this stuff, right? Mr. Lincoln at Disneyland was a big deal in 1955. It ain't a big deal in 2015, right? Henry Morris, the creationist, very interesting commentator, he suggests that the breath or life given to this image may be an unclean spirit or a demon that empowers this image of the beast and speaks through it, which is interesting. Well, regardless of the source of this breath, the image of the beast now commands universal worship of the actual beast. Now, this is going to have to be pretty profoundly impactful. You've got an image of the beast on the internet, on broadcast, I'm sure it's worldwide, giving speeches, commanding the worship to the Antichrist, and everybody knows it's an image. But it's talks. And it appears to be volitional and sentient, intelligent. You think it's going to have an impact? It's going to have a massive impact. That's exactly what Satan wants. He wants to persuade people that this is divine, that this is supernatural, this is God. And the, the command is very simple. Worship the beast or die. This doesn't sound like the land of the free, does it? It sounds like slavery, and that's exactly what it is. This is the point of no return. At this point in time, all compromise is eliminated. We're only going to have two camps in the world at this point. It's very simple. If you worship the Antichrist, you may physically live, but you will spiritually die forever in hell. Period. If you worship Jesus Christ, you may physically die by the hand of the Antichrist, but you will certainly spiritually live forever in heaven. Now, we all know we want to be happy. My point is, how long do you want to be happy for? You want to be happy for three and a half years, maybe, until the judgment comes, or do you want to be happy eternally? It's real simple, folks. We have the same choice today. I talk to people all the time that make decisions for temporal happiness. I say, how long are you going to enjoy it? Not as long as you'd like. As you age, your body will take away most of this world's pleasures. Yes? I'm sorry, you know, Brad's taste buds are dying. I need spice. I need lots of spice. I need spice to the point of where it makes me sweat to taste real. I mean, I love that stuff. When I was a kid, I couldn't stand any spice. Seriously, a pepper shaker was way too much for me when I was 10. Now, that I didn't even begin to touch it. I put Tabasco on just about it. Not quite desserts, but I mean, you know. what? <laughs> I'm, life will take away temporal life, the process of aging, the law of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics will take away your pleasures in this world. You've got to decide where your treasure and where your joy will be. It needs to be in heaven because that goes forever. What you're finding out here is the cost of discipleship is going up because there's no freedom of conscience under the Antichrist. None. Verse 16. It says, and he causes all. Underline the word causes. You can write the word makes or forces. Same word. He forces all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free and the men and the slaves, to be given a mark on the right hand or on their forehead. Here's the principle. Who you choose to worship determines your eternal destiny. 
Who you choose to worship determines your eternal destiny. Now, it's obvious that no one's exempt. No class of people can escape. This is equal opportunity tyranny. I want to briefly go through the word amark. It's from the Greek word charasso, C-H-A-R-A-S-S-O, C-H-A-R-A-S-S-O, and it means to cut to a point and then to inscribe. Could be translated in grave. It denotes a permanent mark. It's probably a specific design that proclaims loyalty to the beast. So this mark indicates your relationship to the beast, to the Antichrist. Now, Satan is once again copying God. What did we find out a few chapters ago? God placed his invisible seal on who? 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Satan now has to put his mark on the people who follow him. Yes? Except his mark is visible. It's on the right hand or on the forehead, right? And it probably made by engraving, etching, imprinting, branding, tattooing, cutting, implanting. I don't know how the mark gets there, but it will be visible and it will be permanent. It'll probably be in the tissue or on the tissue, probably in the tissue of the skin since it can't be removed. And it'll be a visible and permanent brand. But it's very important you understand no one will be forced to take the mark against their will. The mark will be chosen. The mark will be chosen by the recipient. And when someone takes the mark, it says, I am choosing to worship the beast as God. I am choosing to be the property of the beast. I'm choosing to reject all authority except that of the beast. So Antichrist is now my Christ. He is my Savior. That's what taking the mark means. And it's a choice. Now, if you're contemplating taking the mark, God has a word for you. Turn to Revelation 14. Next chapter, Revelation 14, verse 9. God's warning the world, if you take the mark, here's the consequences up front, Revelation 14, 9. And God, in his infinite mercy, broadcasts this throughout the earth by means of an angel who flies in the midheaven, which means the entire earth hears about this. And Revelation 14, 9 says, And another angel, the third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand. So taking the mark is a declaration of loyalty and worship. Verse 10, what's going to happen? He will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and... He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they will have no rest day and night, and those who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Is that pretty clear? Do you get it? It's pretty clear. He says, this is the point of no return. This is the point of no return. Now, Satan is the master of bait and switch. God, our God, the God of the Bible is a God of full and fair disclosure. Yes? Is this full and fair disclosure? He's telling you up front. If you do this, here's the consequence. Now I want you to go back to verse 6. Same chapter, 14 verse 6. This is the mercy of God. Throughout the tribulation, we've said over and over and over again, there is opportunity to repent. There's opportunity to be saved. There's opportunity for evangelism. Opportunity for the gospel. God has two witnesses. He's got an angel flying in mid-heaven right here. He's got 144,000. Go to, go to verse 6 here. 
before the bowl judgments, before the final wrath of God is poured out, God sends an angel in verse 6, I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. Is God giving people opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to come and be saved? God says, I'm not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of truth. This is before the final round of judgments. He says, I'm calling you to repentance. And by the way, in verse 9, 10, and 11, I'm telling you what happens if you don't. Is that full and fair disclosure? You make the choice. The consequence is known. It's pretty obvious at that point in time. But taking the mark of the beast will put you beyond redemption. It is the one sin that is not forgivable. It's permanently rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord and swearing allegiance to Satan. Now, in my little perverse brain, if you took the mark of the beast at, and you changed your mind, this would be a good time to whack your hand off. <clears throat> now, if it's on your forehead, that's another problem. <laughs> but, you know, remember what Jesus said, better enter life maimed. Right? If your eye causes you to stumble, what? Put out your eye. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. I wonder, you know, if you'd go to a friend and say, this mark's on my right hand, take it off. I don't know, but it's an interesting thought process at that point in time. Now, the beast is good. Yeah, I know. <clears throat> For some people, there is no solution. I, I get that. Verse 17. The, 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 the beast is going to really incentivize you to take the mark because he's going to forbid you to buy or sell except if you have the mark, the number of his name. So this is false advertising at its best. Satan says, follow me and do whatever you please. You're free to sin without consequence. However, the product you get from Satan is not freedom, it's slavery. The only way you can buy the necessities of life on planet Earth is to have the mark. It basically says you're, you're, you're not going to be able to have a job. You're not going to be able to buy food. You're going to have no housing, no medical care, no education, no clothing, no electricity. You don't have the mark. Everything's going to be monitored and controlled. The cost of discipleship is going up. Now, you won't be here. You'll be in heaven. But God is telling you this to reveal to you the true character of your enemy. Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies and he's a fraudster. He says, sin doesn't have consequence. That is a lie. He says, sin is pleasurable. That's also a lie. Very short period of time it's pleasurable and then you get to live with the consequences and it's not pleasurable. Now, if you want to play his game, you can either take the name of the beast or the number of his name. And there's been, verse 18, there has been libraries written on this. Here is wisdom, let him as understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man. And his number is what? Now John tells you to be wise. And he tells you that wisdom will be required to solve this riddle. And there have been volumes and libraries written trying to identify the Antichrist in advance. And all of them have been a complete waste of time. Don't spend any time trying to do gematria to figure out Okay, I know Hebrew uh, letters also have numerical values, and so do Greece. Let's try and figure out if we add this up, whose names add up to 666? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of names add up to 666. It's meaningless. 
That's not the solution. It's not helpful. The church isn't even on earth when the beast is revealed. 2 Thessalonians tells us that the beast will not be revealed. Antichrist will be revealed until the restrainer is taken away. The restrainer is the Holy Spirit through the work of the church. The Holy Spirit the, the Holy Spirit's not taken out because the Holy Spirit's still at work during the tribulation because people are coming to faith. But the work of the Holy Spirit through his body is done because you're in heaven, right? Let me just give you a brief overview. This verse does reveal that man's number is six. Man was made on the sixth day. Fields were sown for six years. You worked for six days and rested on the seventh day. The seventh day was God's provision for man's needs. God's provision. What's the perfect number? Seven. God's number is seven. Means perfect in completeness. Interesting that John MacArthur says that the identity of God is found in holy, holy, holy. Holiness multiplied geometrically is the identity of God. This man, this Antichrist, his number is what? 666. He is only a man, he is not God. He is not seven. You can, you can multiply 666 by any number and it's never going to get to seven. You can take 666, how many thousands of digits out like pi, you know, you extend it out. It's still human, fallen. It never attains to perfection. Humanity, no matter how powerful, the false prophet and the Antichrist are only men. Evil men, powerful men, empowered by Satan, men. There is only one God. Only one God. Man is always 666, always falling short of the glory of God. That's why Jesus Christ came to earth. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one gets to seven but through me. Right? One way. All right. Summary. We live in an age of increasing deception. And spiritual deception is deadly. And I almost put an addendum on here. And I can be deceived. You need to humble yourself and understand that you can be deceived. Because if you think you're smarter than Satan, you're already deceived right there. Okay? So you can be deceived. Routinely. Secondly, miraculous signs by themselves are not reliable indicators of God's word. Do not believe your eyes. Number three, the foundation of your faith is God's word, not personal experience. I don't care if you have a vision, if you have a dream, if you have a word from God, if you speak in tongues, if it doesn't agree with scripture, it's a lie. Period. You have objective, measurable truth in your hand. You can, you, can, you can know. It's written here. If it doesn't agree with this, it's not from God. I don't care how compelling it is. I don't care if they can walk on water. I don't care if they can open the Pacific and dry it out. If it doesn't agree with the law and the testimony, it's because there is no light in them. So we trust God's objective truth more than our subjective experience. Lastly, who you choose to worship determines your eternal destiny. That's how serious it is. Don't be deceived. Okay? We got enough to think about this week? Next week, Lord willing, we'll be starting in chapter 14. 
Keep bringing your chart with you because we want to continue to give you a chronology. Okay. I love you guys. You are good students. And um, now that you know, do.